You're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in the Midwest exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm producer Joshua LeBure, and now I pass it on to your host, Sarah Johnson. All right. Uh, well, welcome to Car Free Midwest. I am so excited today to be able to chat with someone who I'm a big fan of, Dr. Mimi Scheller. Uh, I first became aware of her work after my friend Manny Cook, who's a planner in Omaha. Shout out to Manny. Uh, he was like, Sarah, you need to read Mobility Justice. And I was like, okay, interesting. Picked up the book. Wow. Wow, were my eyes opened. Uh, and so today I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Mimi Scheller. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, would you like to tell our audience a little bit more about what you do? Yes, thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. So I'm a professor at um, of sociology and I'm dean of the Global School at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, I do work on anything and all things to do with mobility or mobilities, as I like to say, plural. And one of the big areas I'm interested in is uh, inequality around mobilities. So that led to my project on mobility justice, because I think we hadn't been paying enough attention when we talk about mobility and we talk about transportation and we talk about other things like migration, crucial to all of them is justice and injustice. Absolutely. I think uh, before I read your book and became familiar with your work, you know, mobility equity was like a strong set of words. It's like, yes, not equality, but equity. And then it's like, you know what, there is so much to the justice factor and the intersectionality of all of these different things. Um, and gratefully, a lot more attention is being paid to a lot of these intense issues. Um, okay, so you have been writing books for decades, it looks like. Uh, the mobility justice piece, obviously, this is car-free Midwest. A lot of times we invite folks on to talk about how their work impacts car dependency. Um, we could just like let you roll for the half hour we have you and you could just like educate all of us. Um, but again, the main reason I wanted to have you on is because your book was so eye-opening for me. I get really like hyper-focused on local issues because I get too overwhelmed if I look beyond, you know, my neighborhood sometimes. Um, I actually just moved from Omaha, Nebraska, born and raised, been there for too long, just moved to St. Paul. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with transportation policy, which is kind of a funny thing to say. But um, your work has really just opened that lens for me instead of being so hyper-focused on just local issues. I mean, migration justice and climate refugees and like all of these things, you know, we a lot of times focus on grassroots. We talk to people that are like leading critical mass rides in Chicago or, um, you know, sort of more of the grassroots. And I think that it's just really exciting to expand to more of a global level. Um, so I think that, you know, there's, there's just so many different parts of your book that I want to just highlight. But um, I was wondering if we could kind of start at a little bit of a local level and then zoom out. So I know that you do talk a lot about grassroots struggles and how a lot of those movements have kind of widened folks' awareness about mobility and justices. Um, do you want to kind of just, I assume a lot of folks have not picked up your book, but you all should. You should do it. It'll change your mind. Um, but do you want to kind of just like start with the zoomed in viewpoint of what you think is important yeah. with like grassroots activism and mobility justice? Yeah, let me let me 
back up slightly and in, in, in begin with the fact that I, I was born and grew up in okay. Philadelphia. And so, uh, first of all, my context of like my my original like view of the world was very much like an East Coast, you know, urban and suburban idea. And public transportation is core to Philadelphia and to its identity, to its geography, whether we're talking about the subway system, the bus system, the regional rail system. I took all of that for granted. I thought every, uh-huh. everywhere had that, yeah. you know. As I grew up, and of course, you know, cars and and all of that also, but it it took a while for me to sort of open my eyes to the wider world and understand that Philadelphia has this amazing, like, walkable city center, this kind of colonial grid of streets, and this pretty, really good, what you'd call sort of like backbone or spine of its transportation system. I mean, uh, public transportation system. And Yes, it has its issues. Yes, it needs improvement. But I love public transportation. And I and I went on later to live in New York City, um, both the Lower East Side and Brooklyn. And then later I lived in London. And in those in New York and London, when I lived there, I didn't need a car at all for transportation. I could ride a bike and I could take a bus and take a subway. And again, like that's a very narrow, in a way, view of the world, this sort of like big cities with good transportation systems. And so later I was, I lived in Lancaster, England, in the north of England, which is a very, you know, a small, what they call market town. And people there were, um, I was a professor at Lancaster University, and there was a lot of environmentalists and um uh, it was like starting in the in the late 90s, 1990s and early 2000s. And that was when um, I met a lot of people who thought we should move to a post car world. We should we should not use cars anymore. Cars are bad. And, and there used to be a saying, you know, two wheels good, four wheels bad. And there was like reclaim the streets activists in London. And there was protests of different kinds, like environmental issues and they just really took it for granted that we all needed to like get on our bikes right and and stop driving well i got involved in mobility's research at that point created the center for mobility's research which i co-founded with a sociologist named john Ari. and after um 2006 or 2007 i i moved back to the united states and wow, what a difference when I moved back, because the United States in 2007 was nowhere near a postcar transition or a postcar ideology or culture. It seemed like everybody loved their cars. Everybody wanted a car. Everybody was car dependent. And so it caused this kind of jarring effect for me moving between those places and my own experiences to realize like actually car culture is booming and we're not at a transition point. And so that kind of changed my understanding and and sort of arguments where I began to look around, to look at the United States kind of with like an outsider's eyes or so, you know, the sociological imagination we call it and try to figure out like, wow, why, why are cars so important here? And how are the transitions that are starting to happen? Where are they headed? Where, what's going to change and, and what's not going to change? Wow. That's 
that's a lot. I think, yeah, that's uh, just the juxtaposition of one location to another and how they experience transit and or just getting around, period. Um, that's something that has been really, again, I think anytime anyone travels, you gain something from it. I think that's why everyone should travel. Change your perspective. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason that I'm in St. Paul is because going from Omaha, where we've literally been fighting for one protected bike lane for over a decade, and it's still not funded, by the way, uh, to here where it's like the first meeting I went to uh, with a group called Sustain St. Paul, they're reviewing the bike master plan. And they're like, way back in 2009, when we had these protected lanes installed, and I was just like, holy moly, that is a stark contrast, and it can be done. Uh, do you think that it can be done in the United States? Like, do you think that there is a possible, I mean, I know we, we see a lot of these shifts and you talk about sometimes like the green mobility and how that is kind of like an optimistic view, like, oh yeah, we have all these opportunities. And it's like, well, all these capitalists are telling us we have these opportunities so that they can market their product to us. And we can believe that we're helping change the future. Um, where do you find hope? I guess is maybe a, a shorter way of saying that sometimes I'm short on that these days. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm actually pretty optimistic right now about things changing. And the reason is, um, first of all, uh, I, I look at it at multiple scales or levels. So like you said, there's local activism, right? There's a lot of debate happening in every city around the country about, you know, building bike lanes and congestion charging. And what about transit investment? And actually, we need better buses. And so like, People are activated around this issue. It's an important, it's an important topic. Um, and we can't take for granted the, you know, the, you know, I used, I was on the board of the um, Greater Philadelphia Bicycle Coalition, and I'm I'm very much, you know, someone who's supported bike lanes and bike infrastructure, but I also understand that it's controversial and there's political debate around it and it has to be inclusive and all of those things. So for me, okay, those are good healthy policy debates to have and for each neighborhood and each constituency to really get it out in the open and, and say, if, um, you know, a lot of places think that there's a kind of gentrification that goes along with urban improvements, whether it's tree planting or bike lanes. And that's a conversation we need to have. Like, how will these investments benefit lots of people and who's being forgotten? Who's at the table making the decisions? So that's all good. Then at the state level, there's a lot of shifts happening. So we know that California passed its advanced clean cars rules that require zero emission vehicles to be like phased in gradually until they, we get to um, all new car sales to be zero emissions by 2035. And then a bunch of other states have um, copied that, right? So Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Oregon, Washington. So wow, there's like shifts happening at the state level. And then there's the federal investments, right? The Inflation Reduction Act um, and the built infrastructure law are bringing, you know, like $5 billion for um, electric charging infrastructure to be created, electric vehicle tax credits. Um, the federal fleet itself has a rule to shift towards zero emissions vehicles, um, you know, so all, all of these things are aligning in a way and starting to like unlock the stuckness that we have in this country. 
Um, and then on top of it, we have the car makers who are announcing that they're going to zero emissions vehicles only, um, led by you know General Motors, GM, twenty by twenty thirty five, but Jaguar, Volvo, Honda, um, Ford in in Europe, and and some of the other car makers. So there's definitely a transformation in progress. And the question is, how can we make sure that transformation is going to be equitable and is going to have a um, attention paid to different kinds of justice? And whether it's you know distributional justice of who has access to all this good new stuff, or it's deliberative justice, like who's in the conversation, who's even being considered and talk and making the decisions. Um, and things like uh, what we call a capabilities approach to justice of, you know, like who's who will actually be um, have more capacity and capability to move and to access things, but also to stay in place, to live in in these good places that are being made. Yeah, that is. And I feel like I, I should have asked you about the hope part later, because I also want to talk and this is, you know, an unfortunate tragedy that is recent and ties right into what we're talking about or what your book talks about, uh, displacement due to climate change. I mean, I'm talking about Maui and how, you know, I don't want to say ignorance of climate change or the crisis that we're in, nothing, not nothing is being done, but things aren't being done quick enough. And so when we watch these tragedies happen, people are forcibly displaced. And I really liked how you brought that up. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of, I mean, talk a little bit about how you, I don't know, I just have a lot of feelings about tourism when it comes to Hawaii and how that impacts what's happening with the recovery. And I just didn't know if you wanted to share any thoughts about how you see the importance of mobility justice playing into climate change. Yeah, that's so crucial because my whole approach to thinking about mobility justice is to think about the power relations involved and that some people's mobility either um, impinges on on stopping or slowing other people's mo movement or forcibly displaces them. So it's the idea that mobility um, is not just this individual freedom and we all need more and more of it and we all want it and we all have it. It's that actually some people want to be able to stay where they are, to dwell in their home community, and they are forcibly displaced. And there's all different ways that that happens. And many of them connect to other people's power of mobility. So whether it's like building a new highway and, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, that meant tearing down neighborhoods for so-called urban slum clearance, right, that we know devastated many um, black and brown communities in, in urban parts of the United States. Um, or if it's, you know, things like, um, I'm, you know, we're having this electric vehicle transition, it depends on extractive industries, right? We have to do a lot of mining and we need lithium and cobalt and um, all these things. And I've studied bauxite mining, which is how we make aluminum also, which is hugely in demand for car production. And that also displaces people in other parts of the world and, you know, pollutes their water and their land and things like that. And then on that big scale, yes, climate change. So in the United States, transportation is the now the biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. 
And we know that's driving climate change. And we know that these disasters driven by our warming climate and changing disruptions to the climate are displacing people all over the world. And what happened in Maui that's, you know, last week is just so tragic and so awful to even, I mean, I think we're all still absorbing the horror of it. I mean, it's just horrific. And that it's at the heart of Hawaii's historical, you know, center, um, this really important city that's just been burnt to nothing. And so many people lost their lives that were still, you know, obviously the count is still happening, but, um, you know, to my mind, I'm, I'm involved for a long time in the field of Caribbean studies also. And um, um, yeah, I, I was on... in reading your background. I, I saw that and that was news to me. So I don't I mean, I want to ask you everything. But if you could touch on why that was part of your focus on the way towards talking about Hawaii, I'd love that. Yeah. So, OK, so let's reel back a sec again to my origins in Philadelphia. And I always begin there to explain, well, why am I studying the Caribbean? Because I'm not from the Caribbean region, nor is my family. Right. Um, but Philadelphia was this like capital city of the sort of Atlantic world in, you know, the time of the American Revolution, we were part of the transatlantic slave trade. And the whole East Coast, the colonies of the United States, and then the, the North, you know, the, what became New England and the Northeast, um, and all of those cities were driven, their growth was driven by this booming transatlantic slave trade to the crypt from, you know, Africa, in taking enslaved people to the Caribbean, plantations, plantation products brought to the Northeast and then circle back to England and Europe. So that whole triangular trade is our origin. And as I tried to you know, study the origin of my own home city, I realized that actually the Caribbean was more economically important. Kingston was a bigger city than Philadelphia or New York or any of the um, American, North American cities at, you know, in the late 18th century. And so I started to look at my context as an Atlantic, transatlantic context and a black Atlantic context, as I, I read the work of Paul Gilroy back, you know, in the 80s. And, you know, so the, I look at archipelagos of islands, and I look at archipelagos of people who have moved across different places. And what we call the formation of this new field um, called the new mobilities paradigm was to try to push us to not just study um, places within nation states and to like take a state, a nation as like a box and there's a society in that state and then government and then you can compare it to another state and to say, actually, we're all connected. We've been connected. We're still connected. What we do here has an impact there. What happens there has an impact here. And it turns out that's really important for looking at things like our environmental impact and our climate impact because it's all interconnected. So whatever we do in the US has a huge impact on small island states and whether they're independent states or if they're territories of the US and that's a whole complicated history of why some are independent and some are still colonies or territories and all of those things. And so studying the Caribbean, I did work in Jamaica, I did work in Haiti, um, currently um, 
part of a, a project called the Caribbean um, Climate Adaptation Network, which is uh, funded by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And we're working with the University of Puerto Rico and University of the Virgin Islands for the U.S. Caribbean region to adapt to climate change. And of course, Hawaii is the other U.S. island colonized region. And so the work we're doing in the Caribbean is very pertinent to thinking about and understanding what's happening in Hawaii also. And with that said, um, it's there's a lot of similarities. There's differences too, but the sort of what happened in Puerto Rico um, after hurricanes Irma and Maria and the Virgin Islands, um, the, the, the sort of hard hit these islands have taken from climate disasters. And then the kind of um, difficulties, problems, and, and failures really of the government response. And I feel like we're seeing like, you know, in the embers of Lahaina, we're seeing the same flaring up of those tensions of the people who are from there and live there and have generational connections there and the outsiders coming in, the tourists, the second home buyers, the real estate developers, and then how the government response is dysfunctional and can be can be very slow, can be dis, you know uncoordinated, but often how the plans that arise out of the ashes of devastation benefit wealthier people. And those people tend to be the outsiders who are coming in. And we saw that in Puerto Rico and we're probably seeing that happening in Hawaii unless really strong policies are put in place to protect the local community and their their occupation of that land, their right to be there, that it's theirs. And like, how will they afford to rebuild and who will build affordable housing that people will be able to return to? Wow. Yes. All of that. I think, uh, so I'm just flipping to the back of your book, which just so everyone knows, it's not just mobility justice. It's mobility justice, the politics of movement in an age of extremes. And just, we've, we've gotten some pushback uh, from listeners before, like, you talk about politics too much. It's like, that is actually, that's how it goes. It's intertwined. Like these policy decisions are impacting our mobility. So it is what it is. Uh, but I just am glad that that's just like right on the front of your book. Um, so at the end, there's, um, you know, kind of the principles of mobility justice. And I'm just going to read this one about tourism and actually the next one about climate change. Um, it says, tourism shall be fairly exercised to ensure that it does not appropriate public or common lands, does not unduly disrupt the mobility rights or block the accessibility of places to those who dwell there and does not leave behind undue burdens of waste or pollution. Every, okay, so first of all, I just have to leave Almost every sentence in this book, I was like, whoa, I have to read it again. Like, it's such a dense, brilliant, like, it's just, I feel like, I mean, I've been in this transportation space for 20 years, you know, like, via bike shops. That's That's been my, my jam. Um, and then advocacy and grassroots stuff. And I'm just like, this is the most, like, dense, brilliant. I, I don't want dense to sound, like, not good. But it's like, yes, dense as in I have to read every sentence multiple times for it to, like, get into my brain. Um, so that was, that was one that just stands out with like, I, with the whole Maui situation and tourism. Um, and then another one, 
again, in the back where the the principles of mobility justice are listed, you write, those displaced by climate change shall have a right to resettlement in other countries, and especially in those countries that contributed most to climate change. And I'm like, damn, that is right. Like, I just think that so, so much of what we're seeing happen is being done for money and for those at the top with the most resources, and it's leaving so many behind. And when, you know, I just like that you're calling out like, you know what, those that produce the most need to deal with their repercussions and the repercussions are coming if you like them or not and get ready. I just, I don't know. Some of that is just like really powerful to me. Um, I don't know all of it. I mean, you talk about planetary commons. I mean, it's just, it continues to blow my mind. I continue to resource or, you know, uh, reference your book regularly. Uh, Our listeners have heard about it before, but yeah, it's just so fun to have your face in front of me and your voice on our little podcast. Um. Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm so excited that um, the book is finding an audience like yours and like you. And like, I know it, it, it can be dense because I was like packing in, you know, a decade or more of research and thinking and collaboration with, you know, many other people around the world who are researching these topics and trying to like put it into like a digestible format with, um, you know, chapters on each topic. And so, yeah, there's a lot packed in there, but definitely like pulling those threads and then talking about them in local places. Like, wow, how is this happening here? How, how can we think about that? That's so important. And the, I mean, the tourism part, I, I, you know, I admit, I confess to being, you know, and having been a tourist throughout my life. And, and I was always, you know, thinking about it a little, like in the back of my head, like, okay, well, what's going on here? Like what, you know, it seemed unequal. It seemed sort of unfair, you know, to be sitting around on the beach or, you know, at the hotel pool or whatever. And there's all these people working. And you know they're working hard. You can see they're working hard. You know they're probably underpaid. And like something doesn't mm-hmm. feel quite right in that. And you can block it out. You can like sip just your drink on the beach like, and yeah, yeah, check out. But yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not going to think about yeah. it. Uh, you know, give me another yeah. margarita, yeah. whatever. But like, you know, you, you eventually it comes back yeah. to bite you. Right. And yeah. you, we all need to think about those kinds of everyday inequalities that are like right in front of our faces mm-hmm. all the time. And yet we sort of tune it's easier. Them out. It's easier and, so, and it's lazy and yeah. it's complacent and it's put us in the position that we're in. And so I just really respect it when people call it out at face value and say, here's the issue. We need to look at it. It's too, I mean, it's not too late. I, you know, like I said, I'm not great at being an optimist these days. Uh, I appreciate that you're, you're finding ways to do that. Um, along the lines of displacement, I, the last interview I did was with some folks, um, in Minneapolis and they're talking about tearing down I-94. And so we were talking about displacement at that local level. And so it's just like, I I don't know, it's just a fun thing to zoom out and be talking about like global displacement with you when I was just talking about like the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul last week, you know, like it's just kind of a... Well, that's the thing is I think of each one of those little local um, movements or protests or, you know, social mobilizations as a kind of fractal politics everywhere in every local community where there's people like calling this stuff into question, it all matters. And that's what gives me me hope. And and I see this with like 
across the Caribbean region, like the social movements are always questioning power and questioning who's who's in power and what are they doing and each little movement whether and each little you know neighborhood and each little island they all matter because they're networked and that that's what i call like not just the politics of mobility but the mobility mm. of politics ah, brilliant yeah everything you say i'm just like Ah, yes. Uh, okay, so I, I started this conversation saying shout out to Manny Cook. He also, um, he's doing great work in Omaha. He used to work for the city of Omaha. Now he works for a, kind of a nonprofit development, cool thing. Um, and he was specifically responsible for writing in some policy about anti-displacement moving forward with a lot of Omaha's decision making. And so yeah, it is It is helpful to remember that there are really good folks all over the globe uh, doing important work. And calling things into question and like you said questioning people in power i actually feel like that's part of the reason that i felt like i overstayed my welcome in omaha is because i really had a lot of feelings about the way that the current administration is taking things backwards um like literally removed the only on-street bike parking bike corral in the city uh while there was a bike lock to it it's a whole story anyway so i would question the mayor's decision making and i got blacklisted and so it felt very like I felt handcuffed in Omaha. So that's why I left. Um, and then I think about the yeah. absolute privilege that I have to be able to be like, I'm sick of Omaha. That's rude, Mayor Stothard. I'm leaving. Uh, and like, <laughs> just how, yeah, just how it's super important to understand that not everyone has that privilege and to like highlight the conversations about those inequities and bring those voices to the table. Um and just try to like help, you know, car-free Midwest. Yeah, right. People are like, what do you mean car-free Midwest? It's like, we got to like give people something to think about that's different. You know, if you don't shift your perspective, like things will be the same and they will not change. And I think a lot of us are aware that a lot of change is necessary. So, ugh. yeah. And that, I mean, so like when I first heard the title of, you know, the podcast and the car, well, I was like car-free yeah. Midwest. I don't often hear those exactly. words put together. <laughs> And it, it made me hesitate a moment and think about, okay, what about all the people who are what we call car totally. dependent? And there's a lot of work done recently on, um, in fact, there was, a, there was a blogger, I think it was on Vox just this week, who, who was talking about an article she wrote, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name, about how um, um, single income female-headed households need cars like they're really dependent on cars because of the care work that women do and i do work on gendered mobilities and care work and you know safety on the streets or whatever and a lot of um, single moms who are working they are you know doing all kinds of care work whether for children or for other family members or volunteering you know social contributions to communities and you can't do that in most American right. cities and suburbs and other places without a car. So when we talk about car free, it really requires like a big vision of actually changing our entire built environment and how we live our lives, how we take care of each other. It, and that's what led me to the idea about mobile commoning, because a commons or commoning is something that will be needed if we're going to have car-free lives. We need to help each other in different ways and we need to share the burden in different ways. And so that ties in totally to the need for um, not just affordable housing, 
but affordable housing with certain kinds of shared facilities. Like we need solar microgrids and shared EV, you know, charging and vehicles that are like that little microgrid community might be able to use when they need it, all kinds of stuff like that. But it opens up all those possibilities like, wow, let's like rethink how we how we build, how we live, what kind of environments we have. Wow. Yes. Yep. I uh, man, I just have so many more questions for you, but I want to be respectful of your time. And it's been a half an hour. And I think that's kind of a beautiful place to leave it with the mobile commons. Um, and I will just tell everyone, please read any work. It sounds like I'm excited to check out your other books at this point too. Um, and I, I think I posted a link to the blog that you had just, or not blog, but the, <clears throat> excuse me, article uh, from the Union of Concerned Union Scientists. Of Concerned yeah. Scientists. So, and that one, mm-hmm. just kind of a little Great. tidbit of a lot of the stuff that it seems like you cover uh, in the book. So I guess... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any parting thoughts? No, I just want to say thank you, Sarah. I'm just really excited to share this work with um, your listeners. And um, I'm happy if anybody, you know, wants to follow up, get in touch with me, um, you know, feel free to email me at um, mscheller at wpi.edu. And uh, this is a great opportunity. And I, I want to leave everybody feeling hopeful. You know, I think together we, we can change the world. Yes, I, I'm with you on that. Okay, good. Let's do it. Let's change the world. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mimi. And that does it for this episode of Car Free Midwest. We're here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at CarFreeMidwest or visit us at CarFreeMidwest.com. Subscribe to CarFree Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts and support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash CarFreeMidwest. This podcast is produced by me, Joshua LeBure, and hosted by Sarah Johnson. Our theme song is New Deal by The Big Quiet via Free Music Archive. Yeah.